If you have your Bibles, if you'd be turning in them now to the book of 1 Samuel. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find this on page 202. I would encourage you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can understand, and you would like to use that one uh, while I'm preaching, then I would encourage you to take that home with you as our church's gift to you. We're going to be spending the next several months, probably with some breaks along the way, working through First and Second Samuel. And the reason for that is that really First and Second Samuel are one book. Uh, it's like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. The book of Samuel was divided because fitting this one book onto a single scroll just wasn't practical. But from a theological standpoint, understanding the unity of First and Second Samuel helps to clarify the book's overall meaning and message. We're being shown here how the Lord raised up Samuel to transition his people from the period of the judges to the time of the kings. More specifically, to King David, the one from whom would come the Christ. Now, it may also help us to note that in the original Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, uh, it doesn't separate Judges and 1 Samuel with the book of Ruth. Now, chronologically, as far as in the order of events, Ruth does come in between these two books, and it, it does end there in Ruth 4 with the genealogy that points us to David. And so that's helpful. I'm not saying it's, you know, throw out your Bible when the ordering's different. But the first audience would have been reading along in their Old Testaments and would have seen, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was a certain man of Rehamathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Now this scene starts off around 1100 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And in this chapter, which we're going to be looking at this morning, we're being given an intimate look into the life of one family. And really even more narrowly than that, into the life of one woman. To see how her pain was a part of God's plan to bring the Messiah. And before we read, let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word, that as it comes in through our ears, it would take root and grow up and bear much good fruit in us. Would you get glory to do that for the sake of your son? In his name I pray, amen. In verses 1 through 8, we see God's plan for our lives can break our hearts. God's plan for our lives can break our hearts. Read with me in verses 1 through 8. There was a certain man of Rehamethim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephaphrite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. 
As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now we're introduced to Elkanah as a known man in the life of Israel who had two wives. And this detail tells us that he was doing well enough financially to be able to support two wives. But more importantly, it sets the stage for the conflict that we see. And now you should know that although polygamy was tolerated and regulated in the Old Testament, it has never been condoned or promoted. It has always been a deviant understanding of God's design in marriage, and accordingly, it makes a home ripe for division and strife. And now, giving the ordering of their names, it's likely that Elkanah took Peninnah as his second wife only after his first wife, Hannah, was unable to have children. Now, for a number of reasons, in their culture, offspring were considered vital for the well-being of the family. They were essential, not just as workers and managers in an agrarian economy, but also as caretakers for aging parents before institutional health care, but also as providers when the mother, who was often younger, was widowed as their father died. And beyond this was the longevity, the honor, the reputation of the family being passed down to their children as heirs who would take up the family business and land. But there's another reason that childlessness was so difficult at this time. And I think it's this reason that helps us understand Hannah's experience as it plays into her spiritual struggle. You see, in Deuteronomy 28... God promised to prosper the fruit of Israel's wombs if they faithfully obeyed His Word and to curse them, to curse the fruit of their wombs if they didn't. So when Peninnah was able to have children and Hannah wasn't, by the same husband, It would have brought a level of shame and suspicion on Hannah within the community, but also within her own heart. Now this would have been on top of the already intense pain felt by any wife who wants to have children but can't. And now I imagine in this room that many have experienced that same longing at one point or another. But it gets worse for Hannah, as we'll see in just a moment. Joshua 18 verse 1 records that toward the end of that first initial surge into the promised land as they're occupying under Joshua's leadership, the nation assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. It's there at the tent of meeting that the Ark of Covenant would have resided and that's then where the people would go to enter into God's presence to worship Him and to keep the law's sacrificial commands. Now Elkanah feared the Lord. And accordingly, he would take his whole family on the 15 to 20 mile journey from where they lived to Shiloh every year. And a major part of this involved making animal sacrifices to the Lord, which the family would have gotten to enjoy the meat from. Now, I don't mean to trivialize what was happening here, 
But I think we would better understand the feel of these yearly journeys if we thought of them more like family vacations or reunions where there's a big cookout. This was a time of celebration built into their family traditions, which meant they were intended to be looked forward to. But that wasn't Hannah's experience. You see, this annual retreat didn't trigger happiness for Hannah. It was the opposite. In many ways, she would have dreaded this journey because she knew the ridicule and mocking that was in store for her from Peninnah. And like the head of a table at Thanksgiving or Christmas, Elkanah would carve off servings of the meat from the sacrifice, which was a major treat in their day because they didn't enjoy meat every meal like we tend to. And what he would do is is not be stingy with Peninnah and her children, but he was overly generous in what he gave to Hannah. But because she didn't have any children to share it with, she couldn't bring herself to eat a bite of it. And now the disproportionate servings between Peninnah and Hannah probably signal Elkanah's favoritism toward Hannah, like Joseph had been favorite, had shown favoritism toward his brother Benjamin instead of the others. And if that's the case, then his partiality would have been culturally backwards. He would have been expected to favor the wife who bore him children over the one who had borne him none. No doubt that's what Peninnah would have expected that she deserved maybe. But instead, Hannah seems to be the one who has the lion's share of his heart's affection. And so it might be safe to say Peninnah had Elkanah's children, but Hannah had his heart. And hence, we can understand this rivalry much like Leah and Rachel with Jacob. And verse 7 points out that this wasn't a short-lived problem. This wasn't a one-time thing. This was Hannah's experience every year, year after year. We're meant to feel the burden of the sorrow and suffering Hannah experienced like weights stacked on top of each other until they're crushing her under their burden. She was being forced to remember but what she wanted to forget. She had no children. So then even with a feast in front of her and celebration happening all around her, all she could do was feel her heart breaking inside of her. Now Elkanah knew why Hannah was devastated. He's not oblivious. He hated to see her like that because he loved her whether or not she was able to bear him children. That's a mark for him. It's hard for any good husband to see his wife in pain. He wants her to smile again. He wants her to enjoy this family tradition and at least this great meal with him. This was supposed to be a happy time as they praised the Lord together. He wants her to be satisfied in what she has instead of consumed by what she doesn't. And that's where his comment about him being more than ten sons to her comes from. He means well. He just isn't able to fully understand her suffering. With the best 
of intentions. He tries to draw her out of her depression without entering into it with her. And maybe he thought it would be best for them to move on in their hearts and just accept that this is the way things were going to be. Or maybe he thought her continued plight was evidence of the fact that this was God's will for her life. What do you think? Does the Lord have anything to do with whether or not someone is able to have children? Is God the one who ultimately decides if someone gets paralyzed from a diving accident or killed in a driving accident? What about cancer, dementia, arthritis, or heart disease? What about your spouse or your child dying? What about all the people killed by natural disasters, by COVID-19, or by wars? Is God in control over those terrible things? Why wasn't Hannah able to have children? Who was ultimately responsible over the closing of her womb? What do you believe? What does the text say? It's recorded verbatim twice in verses 5 and 6 to make sure we don't miss it. You can look there. The Lord closed her womb. The clear refrain of Scripture is that children are a blessing from the Lord. But God had chosen to withhold that blessing from Hannah and give it to Peninnah. But it should be obvious to us that the Lord's decision to do so had nothing to do with Peninnah's worthiness over Hannah's. If his reasons for opening and closing their wombs were ultimately based on them, then those roles would have been reversed, wouldn't they? I mean, how terrible is it to mock someone for not being able to have children by gloating over them about your ability to do so? No, the the Lord had other intentions in His decision to close Hannah's womb. But all the same, His plan for her life had broken her heart by not giving Hannah the child she longed for, God was breaking her heart. But here's the thing. What Elkanah didn't understand and what we might not understand is that this longing for a son had been put there by God. Now don't miss this. The same God who broke her heart by closing her womb is the same God who had put that desire in her heart in the first place. Why would He do that? Why does He do that? Well, it's in order that He might mend our broken hearts. In verses 9-20, through we see the same God who breaks our hearts is the only one who can mend them. The same God who breaks our hearts is the only one 
who can mend them. Pick up in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his, Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now we might assume that with an awareness of the Lord's sovereignty over her suffering, Hannah would have been bitter and jaded toward the Lord. We may think that God would have been the last person she would have wanted to talk to. But we'd be wrong. She couldn't bring herself to eat with everyone else because of her sorrow. But once everyone else had filled up and settled down, she slipped out to go into the presence of the one who had broken her heart. In the depths of her distress, she goes directly to the very one who had afflicted her. And she pours out her heart to him in earnest prayer. She remembers what would have been so easy for her to forget. That God breaking her heart by closing her womb didn't mean he didn't love her. It didn't mean that he didn't hear her, even though she is ready to admit that it felt that way. And in her response to her pain, we see such a beautiful display of her faith in God. She knows and embraces the fact that the same Lord who closed her womb is the only one who could open it. Friends, the same God who breaks our hearts is the only one who can mend them. In the depth of her distress, as she's overcome with emotion, Hannah prayed to the Lord. What would you have done? Where do you turn to relieve your anxiety and stress? Do you rely on food? 
Maybe drink. Maybe exercise. Or some form of entertainment. Just to quiet the cries of your broken heart. Or do you go to the Lord in prayer? You see, the great anxiety and vexation, the trouble in her spirit, the deep distress, the affliction that Hannah felt were not wrong. And yours might not be either. You see, our fears and anxieties signal what we care about. That means that some of our fears and anxieties are right, even though we might respond to them in a wrong way. If they tempt us to faithlessness or to hopelessness, then we're not responding to them as God intends. His desire is that in the heartbreak of fear and anxiety, we would come to Him and give them to Him. We offer up to Him the pieces of our lives as we lament our experience and ask Him to help us make sense of it. And as we do, we find that He uses this expression of our faith to strengthen our faith in Him. What Hannah's remembering as she calls out to the Lord of hosts in verse 11 is that He has all power and all authority at His disposal to completely change her situation. There's no question in her mind about whether or not He's able to do what she asks of Him. But she also understands her place as well as all of our places before Him. And that's one of humble and complete submission to His will. Did you notice as I read that she refers to herself as your servant three times in such a short prayer? She knows that God isn't obligated to open her womb, but yet she still humbly asks Him to do so. And the implication is that however He answers, with a yes or a no, she will accept His will. Again, how does that compare with how we pray? Isn't it common to hear in other people's prayers, or at least hints in our prayers of, God, you better do this or else? Many people blame God for their abandonment of the faith because He didn't work things out like He should have. But friends, while I in no way mean to minimize the pain of prayers unanswered, we must not forget that we are praying to God, which means we are not God. He doesn't exist to do our will. We exist to do His will. So then when we pray... We should come to Him with all the desires of our hearts like trusting little children. But we must also embrace the fact that our Heavenly Father always knows what's best. And that's what's reflected in Hannah's prayer and subsequent vow. She's pleading with the Lord to see her plight, to intervene on her behalf, to alleviate it by giving her a son. Of course, fundamentally, she knows that he does see her, that he hasn't forgotten her. 
But our affliction can often make it feel like He has. And this is what it means to lament. As someone has said, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. That's what Hannah is doing as she vows, Lord, give me a son and I'll give him to you. Now that little nuance about the boy's hair alludes to him being set apart as a Nazarite, like most famously Samson, which would have been showing an external sign of his dedication to God. But even more noteworthy is what her vow tells us about her desires for a son. Hannah doesn't want a son for her own sake or for her own glory. She's not trying to earn Elkanah's affection or to put Peninnah to shame. She wants a son because children are a gift from the Lord and His good design for wives is to become mothers ordinarily. And she wants a son so that he will serve the Lord. He's put that in her heart. Any desire for personal vindication in the eyes of the people who have mocked her doesn't seem to be fueled from pride here. Here's why. If she was concerned about who would take care of her if Elkanah died, she wouldn't get that help from this son if she kept her vow. She trusts in the Lord by committing to give the son he would give her back to him. Her vow was about God's glory and not her own. And this gets even clearer as Eli comes into view. Now he's observing from a distance this just incredibly intimate and personal moment between Hannah and the Lord. And maybe it's due to the dark spiritual climate or his own insensitivity, but Eli mistakenly assumes this is just another woman wandered in off the street who had too much to drink. But Hannah explains that her body isn't drunk with spirits. Her spirit is drunk with pain. She doesn't want Eli to misunderstand who she is and what she's about. She hasn't come as an expression of how little she thinks of the Lord as to come drunk. She's come to show how much she thinks of the Lord in her time of need. She's been pouring out her soul, she says, before the Lord. Now don't miss that. That's a beautiful description of what prayer is. Prayer is pouring out our souls to the Lord. Now Eli's response shows that he believes her and he sends her out with the Lord's blessing in his own prayer. And Hannah's response reveals to us what has happened in her heart. This is important. The end of verse 18 tells us that her whole disposition changed as she left. She received the peace that Eli had sent her out with. Now, when did that change happen? Was it before or after she received what she was asking for? It was before. Verse 18 comes before verse 20. And this is the clearest way to know that her vow was about God. Her hope was in God and not a son. She didn't have a son yet, but she did have God. She didn't pick up the same burden that she had come to the Lord with. She left it there at His feet and it changed the whole outlook she had. And it should do the same for us when we follow her example. 
Now in the morning, before they started their return journey, they worshipped before the Lord one more time. Once back at home, Elkanah slept with Hannah like normal. But now the Lord remembered Hannah just like she asked and opened her womb. And the text says, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she named the boy Samuel because he was living proof that the Lord had heard her cries. She had the son she asked for. Now don't miss this. God had broken Hannah's heart in order for him to mend it. But he did not mend it by giving her the son she wanted. He mended it by giving her his peace. You see, it was right and good for her to want a son. I've already said that God had put that desire within her. But... If giving her a son meant giving her an idol for her heart to worship, it would not have been good for her. It was when her heart was content in the Lord, with or without a child, that the Lord saw fit to give her the child she asked for. But we need to be extremely careful to avoid the pitfalls that revolve around a statement like that. There's several of them. I'll just mention a couple. We could think, well, Hannah wanted something that she needed God to give her. Hannah made a vow to God and he gave her what she asked for. Therefore, I should make vows to God for what I want and trust the Lord will give it to me. No, friends. This is not a proof text for vow making. This is a proof text for going to God in our heartbreak. Don't we see how this text along with a thousand others reminds us that God actually cares about our anxieties, our perplexities, our shame, our despair, our depression, and our reputations. Loved ones, don't believe the lie that if God cared for you, then he wouldn't have allowed X to happen to you. Friends, He cares more deeply for you than we will ever know. And the way to explain how a God who cares so much for you will still allow allow X to happen to you isn't by saying that He wasn't in control of it. No, friends. You can't follow along the storyline of the Bible and believe that. There's no truth there, but there's also no comfort there. The truth and comfort come in embracing that the same God who breaks our hearts is the only one who can mend them and that He is committed to do so when we come to Him in our hurt with faith. Now, I am also not suggesting that if you haven't received from the Lord what you're asking, then that means whatever you want is an idol in your life that if it wasn't your idol, that then well, God will give it to you. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying from this text, I believe, is that we should commit ourselves and our requests wholeheartedly to the Lord in prayer. We should pour out our souls to Him. We should fast and pray with great hope 
in what the Lord can and might do. However, with or without what we ask for, if we have God, then we have more than we need for our hearts to mend. If we get what we ask, well, then we'll use it for our service, as we'll see in a moment that that's what Hannah does. If we don't get what, our, what we ask, well, then we'll continue to serve him all the same as his servants. Hannah getting the son she wanted must not be interpreted as a guarantee of us getting whatever we ask if we will make a vow. That fundamentally misses how this birth of this specific child was functioning in redemptive history. We see that in the last section in verses 21 through 28, where we see we don't know all God's planning, but we should always trust Him. We don't know all He's planning, but we should always trust Him. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So the scene is that the time comes for the yearly sacrifice per usual. But this time in the place of Hannah's sorrow, we find incredible joy as Samuel has been added to the family. However, you might assume that in reading this that there's actually still sorrow in Hannah's heart with the realization that she's going to have to part with Samuel to keep her vow. But I think that totally misunderstands what Hannah's doing in staying back. The the reason that she stays back until Samuel is weaned is not in her refusal to keep the vow that motivate her. It's her commitment to keep the vow. She knows that once she goes, she's going to give him for good. And so she wants to make sure that he's going to be able to be without her. She's not delaying the inevitable. In fact, you might even say by having to bond with Samuel for the customary three years or so, it would have only made matters harder on Hannah to give him to the Lord. But this isn't about what's easiest for Hannah. Hannah is about what's best for Samuel and what's most honoring to the Lord. And now we don't know when Hannah told Elkanah about her vow, but according to Numbers 30, as her husband, once he heard it, he had the right to veto it. So the fact that he intends for her to keep this vow speaks to their unity of heart before the Lord in this. And now the focus is rightly on Hannah. I'm not trying to steal any thunder, but don't miss the fact that this would have been a heart-wrenching decision for Elkanah to embrace as well. But he's not wavering. He's willing to take Samuel on their first journey following his birth if that's what needs to happen. But Hannah suggests a different plan and he doesn't object to it. 
Again, we see his trust in her. And he then reaffirms their collective commitment to honor the Lord by keeping the vow. And true to her word, when Hannah had weaned Samuel, she brought him to the Lord. And she takes a a sacrifice along with her. One that was incredibly generous in comparison with what was required. And this only confirms that this is a moment of joy, of gratitude, as they appear there before the Lord. And you have to just imagine... I mean, just parents, picture this happening with your kids. Bringing your son to Eli to give him away. I mean, I can remember my parents weeping as they left me at a Southern Baptist college. And this is just slightly more dramatic. Now, Hannah reminds Eli of the scene described in verses 9 through 18, now several years before. Just picture it. In her arms, she holds the very answer to her prayer. Eli prayed that the God of Israel would grant her petition, and now Hannah says, He has done just what you said and just what I asked. The Lord has done it. This is meant to be a moment of the overflow of thanksgiving for God's kindness. As Hannah is saying, because he has done what I asked, I will do what I said. He has given Samuel to me, and now I give him back to him. And by giving Samuel to the Lord to live in his house instead of her own, Hannah powerfully displays her faith in God. You see, Hannah believed that the God who broke her heart in order to mend it was worthy of all her trust, even if she didn't know everything he was planning to do. Hannah didn't know that this child would become Israel's last and greatest judge. She didn't know that her son would anoint Israel's first king and Israel's greatest king for a millennium before Christ. There was no way for her to know. But because she knew God, she knew enough to trust Him. Now from our positions, our lives may seem incredibly small and insignificant. And in one sense, they are. The birth of Samuel isn't designed to make us think much of ourselves because of our pain and heartbreak. Well, they're going to be used to change the world in amazing ways like Hannah's. No, this story is intentioned to make us think much of God. In the midst of the time when the judges ruled and there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes when lawlessness and depravity dominated God's people including its religious leaders as we'll see in just a couple weeks with Hophni and Phinehas reference in verse 3 God was at work to accomplish his plan to establish the Davidic covenant and monarchy to point the way forward to the king of kings Friends, you may feel like history is a circle where we just continue on a merry-go-round to see the same things happen in another generation. And that's true to a certain extent. There's nothing new under the sun. But friends, history is ultimately a line. It is going somewhere. It is pointing to someone 
You see, God created everything that exists. But His good creation chose to pursue sin instead of Him. The sin that we all thought would satisfy our hearts has broken our hearts because our hearts were made to love God. And to make matters worse, once we're in sin, we have no power to mend our broken relationship with God. Person after person, leader after leader had come and gone, but still no one to this point had been able to bring God's people back to himself. But God had a plan. In fact, it was a plan he established before creation to redeem the world from its bondage to sin. People throughout the ages have just been perplexed on how all these different bits and pieces of history fit together to accomplish this plan. But now the mystery has been revealed. You see, when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son to add humanity to His divinity and live the righteous life communion with God required. Hannah gave her son to God with sacrifices, but God gave His only Son as the sacrifice for the sins of His children. He came as the King of kings, the Messiah that people said they wanted, but they rejected Him. They put him to death on a cross. But the bigger picture is that God put him to death on the cross. God's own heart was broken as he poured out his eternal wrath for the sins of his people on Christ. God's heart was broken to mend our hearts. Our mending was secured when God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm confident without knowing anything about you that you have experienced heartbreak in one form or another. And that pain you felt from whatever has happened is meant to direct your attention to the infinitely the eternally greater heartbreak that exists between you and the Lord. Your relationship with God is broken and only He can mend it. But you see, He has already provided the way of your restoration in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. You will not be able to find that mending anywhere else other than God. Nothing will be able to fill your God-sized void in your heart. But if you will come to Him in faith as you turn away from your sin, then He will give you a new heart and make you whole. The Bible never claims that you won't know future heartbreak, but it does claim that you will never have a reason not to trust God in the midst of it. And one day sooner than any of us can imagine... We will forever be with the Lord and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore because all things will be mended. Friend, trust this God with your life by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ. 
If you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I would be glad to talk to you at the end of this service in just a few moments. Now, church, what should our response be to a God like this? Well, the answer is in the last sentence of verse 28. Our response should be worship. And there is much about our lives that we would never have chosen for ourselves and we would never have chosen for anyone else. We experience pain and sorrow to different degrees every day. But the God who calls us to trust Him in our suffering has suffered more for us than we could ever imagine. And the breaking that God does in us is designed by Him to draw us into greater communion with Him and thereby mend our broken hearts. He calls us to trust Him even when we don't know everything He's planning. So then let's worship this God through our heartbreak with the full knowledge that He will bring our pain to a joyful end. Let's pray together. Father, I can possibly understand the depths of pain even now that are being experienced in this room. But Father, I know that you know. And ultimately, I know just like we see with the closing of Hannah's womb that you are ultimately in control of it. For the believers in the room, I ask that you would cause them not to shrink under that reality, but that they would see your goodness and love through it. And for those that are here that do not know you, that aren't experiencing that communion with you. Father, would you help them to see the thousand heartbreaks they've experienced to this point in their lives are meant to draw them to yourself with the awareness of how you have sent your Son to provide the way for our hearts to mend, not just for now, not just for our circumstances to change, but for our eternities to change. Would you do your work among us so that Christ might get the glory? In Jesus' name, amen.